Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and thank you so much for tuning into the podcast this week. I so appreciate it. This is the show that talks about people stuff in leadership, you know, the tough stuff. And my overwhelming core objective is to help shift your perspective so that you have new insights and take new action. And this will allow you to become a wise and compassionate leader. That's what I really want for you. All right. And if you feel compelled to do so because you're enjoying the podcast, please rate me. Rate the podcast. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash Zoe. And it gives you all the instructions on how to do that. I'd so appreciate it. It really does help get the word out. Good on you. So let's talk about some of the challenges that are out there when it comes to communication and connection. Do you want to be seen as the best candidate for your next job, especially if you're a CEO? Do you want your brand and your business to stand out above the rest? Do you want to build trust with your consumers? Do you want to build trust with your employees? Do you want to have more engaged employees? Well, guess what? There's a solution to all these ills. (laughs) Who knew? It's like the magic bullet. And our guest today is a connected leadership expert a communication expert, Mel Kettle, and she walks us through the key components of building a digital presence that builds trust and credibility. A little bit about Mel. She's worked for over 25 years as a communication, strategic communication expert. She's worked with CEOs and leaders from all sorts of different backgrounds and organizations, from associations through to different financial industries. And she is the host of the podcast, This Connected Life, the author of The Social Association. And her second book, Connectable, title yet to be determined, is due out mid this year in 2020. So here we go. Let's get into it. Oh, I am so excited to speak with you, Mel. It's a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Zoe. I have been looking forward to this for such a long time. (laughs) that's good I know and you even put on lipstick for me today which is (laughs) awesome (laughs) it's when we're recording this uh it's Monday and neither one of us usually do publicity type stuff and so it's like oh my goodness I'm speaking with Mel I need to scrub up a little (laughs) I'm glad I checked (laughs) yep yep it's all good so I'm going to start with the tough questions first Mel okay as a connected leadership specialist I'm interested in how you actually define leadership And when did you discover you had the capacity to do it? Oh, I love this question. I think I define leadership as somebody who does something that makes somebody else's life easier without being prompted. Nice. So it's not a part of your job. It's just something that you do to improve someone else's quality of life at that moment because you've seen a gap and something that it needs to happen. So I don't believe that leadership is defined by job titles. I think a lot of people in senior positions are leaders by title, but not necessarily by action. And I think leadership for me has always been something that's been defined by by what you do and how you do it, as opposed to what you say and how you say it. Nice. And when did you discover that you could actually do that? I think probably when I was a teenager or maybe even a little bit younger, like in my young teen years, I was always very involved in brownies and girl guides and they teach you to think of others before yourself. And a few of the, you know, the merit badges that I earned were all about doing things for other people and bestowing kindnesses on other people without waiting for somebody to ask you to do something. Oh, that's really nice. Good on the brownies. Good on the scouts. That's awesome. 
<laughs> it was a, like in hindsight, I just think I learned so much from those years in my life. And I was encouraged to go for the Baden-Powell Award, which in Girl Guides you get when you're about 14 or 15. And I remember at the time thinking I'm going to do this and I don't know what prompted me to do it because I'd never thought of doing anything like that or pushing myself that much before. But I did it and it was really difficult to get. But I just remember being so incredibly proud when I finished that. And that sort of, I guess, gave me a taste for success in the eyes of others but also made me realise that I could do things that I thought were difficult by, and I could overcome obstacles and I could overcome challenges if I put my mind to it. And that was a really big lesson at a young age, which I'm very grateful for. I mean, applying for awards is, takes courage in the first place. Uh, and at 14, oh my goodness, you got a lot going on in that age mm. bracket, let alone to put your hand up, say, look at me, look at me. Yeah. And I'm yeah. worthy. Wow, that's cool. Good on the Girl Guides. And brownies. Absolutely. (laughs) So you've moved from that, like being in service to others and helping others and putting others before yourself and being of service into this world of connected leadership. And uh, I love this. There's a quote from Brene Brown I just want to share with you. And she says she defines connection as the energy that exists between people when they are seen, heard and valued. And it goes on. But that's the part that I remember the most. (laughs) In your experience and your expertise, what does connected leadership mean to you? There's lots of benefits of connected leadership, but I think connected leadership is how do you how do you connect with yourself first? How do you connect with your workplace? And then how do you connect with your marketplace? And connection is about how do you instill motivation in in yourself and in others so that you're seen as somebody who is influential and therefore listened to and so that you are earning trust. I love that. And so it's a series of behaviours and, you know, words speaking, it's not really going to cut it in most cases because we've all, I'm sure, worked with people who call themselves leaders but they're all about them. Uh, And you need to put yourself first to an extent but in the workplace you need to put your people first. I love that. Uh, people first principles are all what I'm about, definitely, yeah. in the people stuff yeah. work that I do. Question about, you say, you know, it's a series of behaviors and one of them is connect with yourself first. How do you do that? I mean, do you find that people struggle with that? It depends on how you define it. So I define yeah. it really simply. You need to look after yourself first because, you know, when you, you know when you're on a plane and they say if the oxygen masks fall, you've got to put your own mask on first and then help others. Well, it's the same with connecting with yourself first. You need to look after your physical health, your mental health and your emotional health because if you don't keep your own cup full, then how on earth are you going to help other people? And so for me, um, one of the things that I'm focusing on enormously this year for myself and connecting on myself is sleep because I know when I don't get enough sleep I don't eat properly I don't drink enough water I drink way too much alcohol way too much coffee way too much fast food Um, I don't exercise enough I start the little demon starts getting into my head and saying you're just not good enough and so everything just collapses in a screaming heap And so I've noticed probably about a year and a half ago, I made the conscious decision that I was going to be in bed every night or at least five nights a week by 10 o'clock. I was going to have the lights turned off by 10.30. I was going to try not to set an alarm and just see what happened. And my normal wake up time is between 5.30 and 6.30. So I'm getting at least seven, if not eight hours of sleep a night. 
menopause, hot flushes notwithstanding. And I am noticing that I've got more energy, I'm eating better, I'm sleeping better. And the weeks when I don't make that focus, I'm far less enjoyable to be around. I'm less in service to others. I'm not as responsive to my clients when there's something that tricky might happen. If I'm doing delivery of a workshop or if I'm trying to write my book or if I've got a coaching call or a mentoring call, I'm usually not as emotionally or mentally prepared for that because I'm tired. Sleep is a, is a big issue and I love the fact that it's so much uh, in the social narrative these days. You know, Thank you, Ariana Huffington, for bringing that to life in her book Thrive a few years ago. I love the fact that you're prioritizing it. And I think, you know what, like in your 20s, sleep was not a topic. <laughs> but uh, hello, knocking on the door 50. Sleep is like the juggernaut. And it's not just 50-year-olds too. I've, I've heard athletes that prioritize sleep. Um, LeBron, the famous basketballer, said that, you know, if you're going to be a fit athlete, prioritize sleep, which is like, what, really? Yeah, it's where it all happens. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, connecting with yourself is getting the basic personal hygiene, self-care stuff sorted. But I think it's also setting, setting boundaries around how you want to live your life. So one of my boundaries is, like you, I fly a lot and I travel a lot. I've got a fairly firm rule that I never catch a plane before 8 o'clock in the morning because if I have to catch a plane before 8 o'clock in the morning, I've got to get up too early, which means I don't get enough sleep because there's no way I can get to bed early enough to get enough sleep to be up at 3 o'clock to catch a 5 o'clock flight. Yeah, three o'clock, wait, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, but <laughs> Queensland, no daylight savings. If yeah. people want me in Sydney or in Melbourne for a nine o'clock meeting, that's the flight that I have to get. Oh, that's horrible. And so that doesn't happen. I go mm. the night before mm. or I go later and get there later. Yeah, right. So, you know, but it's about having the confidence as well to be able to set those boundaries and being able to explain clearly why you've got them. So when people say that's a bit precious, you've got a really valid reason behind why you make the choices that you make. Was that a car horn? No, that background? was the train. That was a train. <laughs> like, yes, we like Bell's point on that one. <laughs> and, and I live under the flight path, so we might get a plane flying over at some stage as well, although the house is locked up with the air conditioning because it's feralling no today. <laughs> well, I did, like, I did like that point, so we can blow a horn on it. <laughs> yep, go for it. Um, I love this notion of self-care and boundaries, and it reminds me of one of my core mantras, which is part of my personal manifesto, which is how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I think that's such a powerful ethos. Not am I strict with it? I think it helps me bring to the fore the choices that we make on a daily basis. And I'm thinking about, and we'll come to it in just shortly, about the social CEO and the priorities of connecting with others and being credible is that if we start with those core principles of personal self-care and boundaries, we're setting a really important standard and message about who we are as individuals that carries over into other aspects of who we are as leaders. And I think that's a really important piece when it comes to showing up in public and building connection. So tell me a little bit about, because you, you spend a lot of your time, I'm guessing, in helping leaders develop their communication strategy, their personal communication strategy, which I think is an interesting notion. So talk me through what is a personal communication strategy as opposed to a general calm strategy for a business? So a personal communication strategy is incorporated with your professional strategy, obviously, but it looks at, as a leader, who do you need to have relationships with? 
So if you're moving into a new role, if you're in a current role, if you've got new priorities, who are the core people that will help you achieve your goals? And who do you need to have solid, connected relationships with? So it might be your EA, it might be your board, it might be your direct reports, it might be your peers, it might be your external, some external stakeholders, it might be some clients, it might be a recruitment firm if you're looking for a new role. So one of the things I help my clients do is map out who are each of these audiences or each of these people who you need to be connecting with and what's the nature of their role to yours? What's the nature of the relationship in terms of whether it's formal or informal? What are the main things that they care about when it comes to you and your role? And how do you create relationships with them in terms of what's the message what are the things that they need to know about you so that you can be more inclined to achieve your goals well let me ask you about that that's an interesting one so what do they need to know about you to help them achieve your goals no no to help them help you achieve your goals help them help you (laughs) to help them help you yeah yeah so one of my clients is a CEO of a financial institution and he's worked for the organisation for a long time, but he was appointed a little while ago to be the CEO. So his relationship with a lot of people in the organisation changed because his role changed. And so he'd never had an EA and so he had to work out how do I work with an EA and had my EA and I work together so that I achieve what the board expects me to achieve is that a dog barking i don't know what that was i didn't I, think that, I thought that was at your end <laughs> it was like a dog going yes like that point <laughs> um so with that one so like ceo to ea and the question about what do they need to know about me what kinds of answers came up with it around that so it's things like how do you like to be communicated with How organised are you? How do you like your diary to run? Are there key times of the week when you just need that blocked out in your diary so that you can do deep work? Or do you like to batch tasks? Or when do I put phone calls through to you when you're in your office? Is it whenever they come in? Or are there times of day when you're not um, wanting to speak to people on the phone? How much do I act as a gatekeeper? And how much do I let people in? Okay. Cool. All right. Now I interrupted your flow. So we were talking about personal connection and one of them is mapping audiences, nature of the relationship and what do they need to know? And it's also looking at, so if it's an external audience or if it's your, your workforce, where do they go to get information? So, and how do they like to receive information? And that's particularly important because we've got up to five generations in many workplaces and marketplaces today, and they all like to get information in a different way. I can see Zoe's counting on her fingers. So we've got, we've got traditionalists before boomers, and, you know, they're currently the youngest in the traditionalist category is 75, and there's still a lot of 75-year-olds in the workplace, and there are an enormous number of 75-year-olds and older in the marketplace Holy who cow. are making big decisions. And uh, I can't remember who I read this research from recently, but people over the age of 50 or 55 control 40% of the wealth in the marketplace today. So a lot of organisations focus on millennials in terms of income, but most millennials are either thinking about having children, have just had children, thinking about a mortgage, have just got a mortgage and don't have as much spare cash to splash as traditionalists and boomers. Yeah, right. And then, and then from a workplace 
perspective, if they're in your workplace, we have to think about how do the different generations like to receive information and be communicated with? You know, we know that for Gen Z, it's instant messaging compared to boomers and traditionalists who like emails and face-to-face communication. So instant messaging as in text or one of the apps? More more through an app than through text. And younger generations also, so um, Gen Z and younger millennials, they expect that if they've got a question of the senior leaders in an organisation, they can just go straight to the source and ask them without going through the hierarchical process that boomers and traditionalists might be used to or expect. How's that working for organisations when the CEO is getting texts from their Gen Z staffer? Very difficult. Very, well, that, that you're assuming that they're making their mobile phone number available. And that's a challenge because if you're wanting to attract younger people into your workforce and you don't put any of who you are out on, in an online space, either through LinkedIn or through being a guest on podcasts or through your website, then how are they going to get to know who you are and what your values are and what you stand for? And we know that younger generations and increasingly older generations make decisions about where to buy, where to work, where to volunteer based on values as opposed to the dollar transaction. Wow. Okay. So this comes to a really important piece of the puzzle. It's like, what is your digital presence and the messages that you want to set up? So are we okay to move into that part? I'm very happy to move into that part. Yeah. Your audience might be going, holy crap, what's going on? Yeah. I'm kind of of thinking that too. It's like, do CEOs need to give out their mobile phone numbers to uh, their staff? So I have a story. My husband and I have a self-managed super fund and it's managed by a company called Super Concepts. And they got a new CEO in April of last year, Lara Bourguignon. And I interviewed her on my podcast. If you'd like to listen to what she has to say about leadership. I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode. She's fantastic. The reason we are connected with her is because she sent an email to all of their clients and there's thousands of them and said this was either on her first day or the morning of her second day saying, hi, I'm Lara. I'm the new CEO. Here's, you know, 50 words about where I've come from and here's 50 words about what I'm doing in my first three months, which is basically listening to customers and talking to staff. And if you have anything that you'd like to discuss with me, here's my personal email address. Feel free to email me anytime and we'll set up a time for an appointment. And that blew me away because you go to so many websites and you're hard pressed to actually find the name of the CEO, let alone how to get an email address or a phone number where you can contact them without getting the runaround that can take weeks. There's success at all. I'm wondering how many people took her up on that offer. Well, I asked her that and a lot. (laughs) So many that she had to hire someone to manage the response to those people and to get them so that somebody could manage her diary to get them all into her diary so she could have a conversation with every single one of them who wanted a conversation. And she said it took, when I spoke to her on my podcast, it was probably November last year, so she'd been in the role for about eight or nine months and she said she was just getting to the end of talking to people who had reached out to her in her early days wow so it was eight or nine months of listening it as was, opposed to three months yeah so she did she also did an official listening tour around the country primarily with staff but also with customers in different cities and she was very very open to you know hearing the good the bad and the ugly 
Okay, so this is one strategy in order to make yourself as available as a leader is to put the message out saying, this is where I've come from, this is what I'm after. And this is also like, this is a timing thing. She's a new CEO, I'm putting that out there. So that's a specific time-bound strategy, unless she carried it over. Has she carried it over? Like you're open to contact me and... Oh, she's happy for people to contact her anytime. And every single one of their, their clients now has her personal email address if they've kept that email. Can you imagine the CEO of Westpac did that? <laughs> Given that the, the financial... No, no. Obviously, you need to have make sure you've got people in place to help manage that process for you. Yeah. But... Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no reason. Um, I used to do some work with Microsoft and everybody at Microsoft knew Bill Gates' email address. It was billg at microsoft.com. And anybody globally could, in the company or external to the company, could email him at that email address. And he had somebody who managed it, but you felt that you were getting direct to him. Yeah. And that was an amazing feeling as a contractor or as an employee or as a customer to know I know his email address. And if you do, though, and somebody else responds on his behalf, do you still feel like you got personal attention? It, I think it depends on what the nature of the email is. Yeah, okay. I think if it, and I've got no doubt that a lot of them would have gone straight to him if they were critical enough. But, you know, it's like when you go to an emergency room at the hospital, you get triaged, and mm. I would assume that these people would have somebody triaging the emails that come in. It's a very different message. So I've listened to... Tim Ferriss has like apparently a whole document that you get if you try and email him and ask for stuff where it says, this is what I do not do. <laughs> so yeah. if you're making requests for book blurbs and blah, 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 forget it. And so you get ping-backed. And then James Clear has recently uh, initiated a canned response like that. If you email him, which says, you know, I get over 500 emails a day, I can't possibly handle them all. So these are the things that are common questions with common answers. And so you basically get a thanks, but no thanks kind of response. But I quite like that because it's still saying you're getting a response. And, you know, um, another friend of mine does that. She's got a small business which gets hundreds of emails a day because she's got a very successful blog off the back of her business. And for years she's said, these are the common questions I'm asked and here's a link to take you to the answer. And if it's any of these other things, if it's anything that's not mentioned here, then I'll respond. Yeah, right. So she doesn't want to be sending the same email, you know, with the same thing that she gets asked. Mm. And those three people that we just mentioned, they're all small business owners. They might be big names, but at the end of the day, they're small business owners. Yeah. It's, and it's no different to if you email or if you look on a website for information about the opening hours of a cafe. I'm sure, you know, good business owners should have processes like that in place that automatically respond to the most commonly asked questions that they receive. Yep. Okay. Well, that's good to clarify all that. So let's talk about digital presence for a CEO. What does that really look like and why is it important? So it depends on, again, who you are and where you are and what you're wanting, who you're wanting to communicate with. Um, I think that, for example, social media presence is essential for CEOs and senior leaders, especially if your role that you're in is not your last role. 
So I say that because there was some research by recruitment firm DDI a few years ago that found CEO candidates with a social media presence were seen to be 46% more influential than CEO candidates who don't have a social media presence. Let's pause for a second. That's an incredible statistic. It is, isn't it? CEOs with a social media presence are seen to be more credible, did you say? More more influential. More influential by 46%. Yep. Mm. Yep. And so think about what that means in terms of the competition in your market, the competition in your market for both jobs, for people who want to come and work for you and for recruitment, as well as for whatever it is that you're selling. And also, you know, if you're a CEO and you're wanting to move into another CEO role, somewhere bigger or somewhere different, then you need to be building your presence online And it can be online internally as well as online externally. So if you're the CEO of a large, excuse me, multinational company, then you need to be using your online tools within your organisation so that people can see you. And that could be through things like making sure you post regularly and comment regularly on tools such as Yammer or Facebook Workplace, if you've got one of those tools or whatever your intranet tool is within your organisation. It could be, I know Ginny Rometty, who's the CEO of IBM, doesn't do a lot of social media externally, but she's all over the internal tools at IBM. So there's internal podcasts, there's internal videos, there's internal times during the month or the quarter where it's ask the CEO for an hour on a live video chat where you can turn up and ask your questions by typing them into the chat box. So that's how you can build your digital presence internally. But also you need to think about how do you build your digital presence externally if that's important to your organisation and to you. And that's things like how do you use LinkedIn? Or it's first of all, it's knowing where your cust- who, who your customers are and where they are. So if you're B2B, then presumably it would be LinkedIn. If your business is a consumer brand, then you might need to have an active presence on Facebook or on Instagram. If you've got a consumer brand and your audience are kids, then perhaps you need to think about what can you do on TikTok as an individual to be getting in front of people in terms of showing how your products and your services work. It's not just social media, though. It's how do you use video content? How do you use audio content? How do you use podcasting? How do you, you know, there's a great TV commercial by Spark New Zealand, which says the youngest generation, they call them generation voice because they don't go to Google, they ask Siri. And it's a beautiful (laughs) ad that this little boy says, is Santa real? And Siri answers. And you know, oh my god, I so want to do that right now. (laughs) At the end of the commercial, (laughs) you can see him saying to his parents who were bribing him with, you know, if you don't go to bed, Santa won't come. He's like, We really need to talk. (laughs) And it's the most beautiful ad, but it just symbolizes where communication is going. So, you know, kids, my nephew, when he was three, knew how to use my iPad and he'd never really even seen one. I remember when my stepson, who's now 19, was in high school, he would say to me, how do I spell whatever the word was? And I'd say, well, let's sound it out. And he'd say, don't worry, I'll just type what I think it sounds like into Google. Whereas now you can just say to Siri or Alexa, how do I spell, um, you know, chocolate? And it will respond. Yeah, it is a brave new world. 
I'm still distracted by asking Siri. Oh, no, same. Like, what are what are some quintessential childhood questions that Siri could provide the answer to? But well, the, I get, that's does a Santa bit. exist? Who's the tooth fairy? You know, think about some of those questions. But also oh. think about if you're negotiating pocket money with your kids, you could ask Siri, how much pocket money should I get? No. All right. I'm, I'm totally Googling those ones. <laughs> Siri-ing those ones. Pocket money. <laughs> But, okay, as, cool. but as a CEO or a leader, while you may not be selling your product or wanting under 10s in your workforce just right now, they're going to be looking for part-time jobs in four years' time and they're going to have significant income to spend fairly quickly. And, you know, the influence that kids and teenagers have on household spending is immense. And that's always been the case because of the pester power, which is what we used to call it years ago. But now, you know, my nephew, he now is he's 11 and I was visiting him the other day and he said to his dad, dad, I want you to get me this particular brand of runner and I'll send you the links as to where you can go to get it because I've done Google searches and I found out where they're the cheapest and what I want and what they look like and all the different bits. So here you go. And you can just order it online. Or you could give me a credit card and I could do it. That's really proactive. The way they shop, that's not uncommon. The way they shop is completely different. I heard another story, and I can't remember who told me this, but I heard it a few days ago where someone was coming, was travelling for work, and his son, I think they lived in um, the UK, and his son said, I'd like an Apple, an iPad, and I've Googled and I've looked at exchange rates and the cheapest place for you to buy it is at the Apple store in Sydney. So when you're in Sydney, here's a printout of what I want and what it's going to cost you in Australian dollars and here's what the exchange rate is at the moment. And he'd done all this homework and this kid was about 15 or 16, but he'd done this degree of research and said, Sydney, Apple, Dad, I know you're in Sydney, so can you just take an hour out and go into the city in between meetings and get it for me? Do you think that's like kid specific or is that generational? I think it's a generational thing, but I think that's what future generations are starting to do. Okay. Or not future, but younger generations are starting to do. And and not even younger. You know, there's research that shows baby boomers and older are also using Google as a tool to help them make decisions about where they're going to buy something. And they might not buy it online. They might go into a store to buy it, but they'll still do all their research online and find the least expensive shop that they can go into to purchase it. My husband definitely does that. He does extensive researching via the Google machine. Um, okay, so there's rationale uh, for internal and external comms that are really uh, important. What's the pushback you get from CEOs about doing this? They don't understand, I think, is the biggest thing. They don't think it's worth the time or the energy for them to do it, and they don't have the time. But one of my responses to that is your people want to know who you are, your workforce want to know who you are. If you aren't connecting with your people in the way that they want to be connected with, then you're going to risk having poor engagement and poor productivity at work and that leads to less profit. We know Gallup research tells us that only 13% of people report feel that they're engaged at work. That's a very, very low number. Even if you can increase that by, you know, 5%, then that will have a really good flow-on effect to productivity and profit. 
one of the reasons people are not engaged at work is they don't understand the purpose of the organisation or the purpose of their job and how that relates to the purpose of the organisation. So if you as the leader and the CEO are not clear on what your organisational purpose is, if you don't have a strategic plan, if you don't have a really clear path forward, then how on earth can you expect the people in your organisation to feel valued and you know, that what they're doing has meaning because inherently people want to do work that has meaning Mm. and you need to relate that back. So there's lots of coming back to the, so like the pushback is they don't have the time, they don't understand. There's lots of rationale behind it. And so once you have people buying into, okay, you know, let's say I'm a CEO of a construction company and I understand that the, there's rationale behind this. What the hell do I talk about? Like, (laughs) (laughs) like let's say I decide I want to do video content audio content and get interviewed on a podcast or two where do I start figuring out my messages so start by thinking what are the questions that I get asked the most so when I have meetings with my staff when I have meetings with my shareholders when I have when I'm in conversation with people what are the questions they ask me the most that are business related and start with those questions because if you're getting those questions then clearly the responses aren't anywhere that they can get get them easily. So one of my, um, I was speaking at a conference a little while ago that had a lot of club managers and one of the club managers asked me that question, what is it that I should be putting on Facebook? Facebook's our major portal for reaching our, our customers and our, our members. And I said, what are the two or three of the biggest questions, most common questions you get asked? And he said, the most common question that we get asked when people ring up and we must get 50 phone calls a day is what is the roast of the day for lunch? In our bistro, what's the roast? And I said, where do you tell people that? And he said, on the menu when they walk into the club. And I said, you need to tell them that before they get to the club because if the roast is their favourite cut of meat, they will be more inclined to come to lunch at your place than go to the cafe down the road. And he said, how do I do that in a way that's interesting? And I said, there's heaps of ways. You're a club that's been around for 45 years, so you can, and you would have records, but get your chef on board with this. And so get your chef to help you, you know, what's the roast of the day? It's beef, for example. In May, we're having roast beef 17 times because it's our most called for roast. And so that could be one one post. The next time you do roast beef, you could say, due to popular demand, we're having roast beef again. Last time we did roast beef, we served and sold X number of kilos of roast beef. And we also served it with this number of kilos of roast potatoes and peas and carrots and whatever. Put some context and tell stories. You could do a series of posts or a post that says, this is how we, a series of posts that say, this is how we prepare our roast beef. This is how we make the decision. This is how we cook it. This is how we carve it. This is how we sharpen our knives so that we carve it and don't carve our, you know, it's not blunt. This is how we make the sauce. It's called sauce, not gravy. This is step people through everything that's to do with a roast beef. And you've got a year's worth of content just around the roast today is beef. And then you can do similar for chicken, for lamb, for pork. You could do a bit of a video back of house. This is how we make our decisions around menu planning. These are the factors that we consider. The impact of the bushfires means that now we've got these vegetables instead or we've got this instead of that. And 
you know, this is where you need to have, if you've got a good SWOT analysis as a part of your strategy, you can have a clear understanding of what your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats are within your organisation. And so you can draw on some of those as well when you're doing your really basic, this is why we're having roast beef today, post. That's really cool. Now I'm, I'm totally interested in <laughs> reading. I'd be interested <laughs> in that. I'm like, really? Like 10 kilos of potatoes for today's lunch? Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of potatoes. You know what they could also do is then interview the farmers that, that, that supply yes. the potatoes. Yep. Yep. And they I can show that. a photo of it and they can show this is what 10 potatoes of unpeeled potatoes looks like. And here's our poor work experience, dude, or our poor first year apprentice who gets to scrub and peel the potatoes. Let's have a chat about how he feels about having roast beef with potatoes 17 times a month <laughs> when we could have roast chicken with rice instead. <laughs> <laughs> How does he feel? What What are his hacks for peeling, you know, 10 kilos, 100 kilos of potatoes in an hour? Yeah. Or what's the fastest he's done it? So, so all of this is really fabulous. And I'm thinking about one C, the same CEO who's of a construction company. And I'm thinking he's already under the pump so much because of the projects that they deliver. And this doesn't sound like core business. And I'm just trying to imagine trying to persuade him to carve out a communication platform. So people do business with people they know, love and trust. And the construction industry in particular is very litigious. You know, there's construction lawyers. What profession has a legal profession with their their industry name in front of the word lawyer? Not a lot. (laughs) Yeah, think about that. Yeah, not a lot. I've, I've done some work in that space and I remember... My client in that space said to me, the term construction lawyer didn't even exist 20 years ago because business was done on a handshake. Yeah. And now there's a lot of disputes and there's a lot of distrust in that sector for whatever reason. So your construction guy, the more he can show that he's trustworthy and the more he can share who he is, the more trust he will earn, which means should something go wrong on the project, there'll be far less likelihood of him being sued or litigation happening because they've got a trusted relationship. Mm, And that is the crux of it all. The more people know you, the more they're likely to like you. And the more they're likely to like you, the more they will trust you. And, And clear communication is a really strong way of earning trust. That's awesome. Mel, I have one last question. And it's a perspective question. So we're zooming out of the connected leadership piece. And, well, it's linked, I guess. So I'm curious, like, um, a change of perspective. Have you ever experienced a change of perspective from something that you heard or read on social media from from someone? Uh, All the time. You know, you make decisions about who people are and what they stand for based on what you read and see and hear in the media. And whether that's in the the paper that you read or the radio stations you listen to or the TV news that you watch. And it's very easy to get a skewed view of who people are based on how the media want to portray someone. When you follow somebody on Twitter or on LinkedIn and you get to read blog posts that they write or you listen to them on a podcast or you see them on a video, you realise that they are not that two-dimensional person that has been portrayed by the press. There's more to them 
and you get an opportunity to see where those similarities between them and you might lie. So can you think of an example recently that comes to mind? I'm just wondering about that. Um, There was a great post by either the current or the former CEO of Vodafone New Zealand who put a post up on LinkedIn. I'll try and find the link and send it to you. It was a, a while ago. And he did this beautiful video post of his little girl and he said to his little girl, who probably was two or three, it's daddy's first day at work today. What does that mean to you? And she said, it means that I don't get to play with daddy today until he gets home. And then um, he asked her something else and she said, don't be home too late, daddy, because I'll miss you when you're gone. And I just thought that's bringing his human side and his personal into his professional because I don't know a single parent who can't wait to get home to see their kids at the end of the day or somebody who can't is excited about getting home and seeing somebody else that they love at the end of the day. And so you just want to make sure it just, for me, it just made me think, oh yeah, you are a person. You might be the CEO of this massive organization, but at the end of the day, in your little girl's world, you're just daddy and I want to play with daddy. So don't get home after I've gone to bed tonight, please daddy. That's lovely. I think that's lovely. So that's another, that's sort of opening up the world of the, of the human side of things. Yeah. Um, And the more we can incorporate personal stories into our external communication, then the more people will feel that they've got something in common with us. You know, you don't need to be warts and all with your personal stories, but it could be as simple as when you get back from a holiday, put a post of, I've just been away for this number of, you know, days, weeks, months. This is where I went. Here's a photo. And this is something that I learned or this is something that resonated with me that has a business message. So you can combine your personal and your business and people expect now that they're doing business with whole people. You're not one person at home and one person at work or you shouldn't be if you're really wanting to earn trust. You need to be that same person in as many different places as you are. That's fabulous. And if people want to reach out and connect with you, Mel, where can they find you? Um, My website, melkettle.com is the best place to start. And I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter, both at Mel Kettle. Okay, cool. And you have another book coming out, right? When's it out? What's it called? When's it out? It's called, um, uh, I haven't quite finalized the title, but it will either be called The Power of Connection or Connectable or something like that. And it will be out probably in July is my plan. Fantastic. That's great. All right, we'll put a link of all of that into the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great to chat with you. Really appreciate it. I love that. Mel has such interesting insights and examples to share when it comes to communication strategy. I guess for me, the key takeaways are develop a personal communication plan. And I think this is particularly salient as we've just got a new business manager on board and it's important that I communicate how to communicate with me and what kinds of things I need. So some boundaries and some requests and some things to make things easier. I think the second takeaway is to get more personal in the digital content, uh, to share a little bit of my personality and my experiences with listeners. All right. I'd love to hear what you got out of the show and uh, what you're going to do as a result of that feel free to email me at zoe at intercompass.com.au. And by the way, if you have people stuff challenges and you're not sure how to connect well with them, apart from having a personal communication strategy, a digital strategy, you probably need some people stuff development. That's my specialty. Feel free to connect with me at zoe at intercompass.com.au. Would love to hear what your challenges are around the people stuff and how I might be able to help. 
In the meantime, live well, lead well.